Welcome to the Bike Talk with Dave podcast. I'm your host, Dave Mabel, and I'm glad you're here. My guest today is no stranger to long, cold rides or even multi-week adventures. Leah Groon has ridden the Northern Minnesota Winter Ultra Arrowhead 135 for more than a decade, as well as the Tuscobia 160 and even the Iditarod Trail 350. And in 2017, she and her husband jumped on their bikes in Banff, Canada, and you guessed it, they rode south to the U.S.-Mexico border in the Tour Divide. This winter, she flew back to Alaska and rolled across Kinnick Lake and up the Iditarod Trail for the thousand-mile journey towards Nome. 21 days later, she was the first and only female to complete the entire journey across Alaska this year. She was kind enough to spend some time on Bike Talk with Dave just prior to heading south to Florida for a week of warmth. I really enjoyed getting to know her, and I hope you will too. So why don't you grab yourself a cup of chain and spoke coffee and enjoy the show. Uh, Leah Gruen. Gruen, am I saying that right? Yep, that's correct. Gruen. Gosh, welcome to Bike Talk with Dave. I'm thrilled to have you on. Uh, you just got back from Alaska to another round of winter in Duluth. Um, welcome home and congratulations on your great trip. Great. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Gosh, how was your trip? Gosh, in a nutshell, I would say incredible. Um, it's kind of hard to, to quickly summarize it. Um, you know, something of that length is like a little bit of, or a lot of everything, you know, if it was a one or two day race, you can characterize it as like, you know, cold year, you know, cold times, yep. uh, warm times, soft trail, firm trail, but on something of this length, you see, you kind of experience the full gamut of conditions, um, it was beautiful. There was good camaraderie amongst, you know, the other racers. Um, I had good, really good company throughout the whole time. Um, so it was more, way more beautiful and fun than I had imagined it would be. So, oh, cool. And that was kind of a trick question. So uh, <laughs> I just <laughs> wanted to throw you off at the beginning because, I, I, of course, I know, like, you spent, I'm not sure what your final time was, uh, just over three weeks, we'll say. 21 days, two hours and 50 something minutes. So right at, uh, three weeks. Awesome. Yeah. Congrats. That's all. That's awesome. But there's no way to summarize that in a sentence. There's no elevator speech that does. (laughs) Yeah. Did a rod trail justice for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, before we dive into your, I did a rod experience, I want to kind of find out what led you there. Uh, everybody starts somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you rode a, a fat bike. You did not, the Iditarod Trail Invitational, you can do on foot, skis, or bike, and you mm-hmm. chose a, a fat bike. Um, but I want to find out what led you there. What was your first kind of experience with, I'll call it serious cycling, like, you know, kind of beyond the cruising around the neighborhood? On yeah, a, and I can <clears throat> kind of even back it up a little bit before there. When I was a um, so I grew up primarily in Rhode Island and on the East coast, my parents are both from Minnesota and every summer starting at the age of 11 until I was 17, I would come back to Minnesota in the summer and go on a canoe trip. And the canoe trip started at like 10 days in the boundary waters in Northern Minnesota. 
And then each summer there was a progression where um, you would go on a longer trip that would be more remote um, than the previous year. So when I was 17, it was a 45 day canoe trip in the Canadian Arctic. Um, and so you'll see the theme of kind of like, each time I come back, do something a little bit longer and more challenging. And then kind of like the, the short story is like perpetuate that to a 43 year old. And this is where you end up. <laughs> that is your model. But um, then I worked at the at that camp for five years. And then I led a group of, um, so I was, when I was in my twenties, I led a group of um, six women who were 17 and 18 in the Canadian Arctic. And, um, you know, it was, it was great. Like scared a grizzly bear out of my campsite that was eating the food and went down rapids and, um, and it was, it was great fun. And then, um, and then I was in college and then, um, moved to Duluth, Minnesota, um, when, after college and, um, was doing a lot of cross country skiing and winter camping. And, um, one of my, one of my, well, I guess, yeah, we were doing a lot of cross country skiing and winter camping. And one of my friends said, Hey, let's sign up for this crazy thing, the Tuscobia and then Arrowhead 135. And I had been following that Arrowhead 135 event for years. Um, Arrowhead 135 is a race of the same format as the uh, Iditarod Trail Invitational in that you can um, bike, run, or ski. It's in northern Minnesota in the coldest part of the winter. It runs from International Falls on the Canadian border down to Tower um, and on a snowmobile trail. And conditions can be challenging. It's kind of epic. And it, I felt like it was in my backyard and I knew people who had done it. And so I was always really intrigued to, to you know, hear results, watch the trackers and, and see what was going on. So um, so with this friend who I cross country skied a lot with, we decided let's give this a shot, um, on skis. Um, and, um, we, um, we had a great winter. We trained a lot. We went out, we did it. I got tendonitis, um, in my shins and only made it halfway. Um, so it's one of my two, two times I was at Arrowhead 135 and didn't finish. And then also around that same time, um, there was a gravel bike race that started up in Duluth and it's heck of the North. And, um, it was a gravel century, so hundred miles on gravel roads. And I thought, you know, I'll give this a try. And, um, for that one, I hadn't trained as much and I started doing it and I just felt way in over my head. And, um, so for the whole first half, I was thinking to myself, like, okay, no, I can't do this whole thing. I'm going to have to drop at some point. Um, what am I going to drop? Like, where am I going to go? Am I going to take the roads back? Am I, am I going to call my husband? Like kind of what's my plan here? And when am I actually going to pull the trigger on this thing? And so I was kind of pondering this and being indecisive about it all. And then I ended up, you know, before I did anything, I got to the midpoint of the race, um, which is the furthest point away from the start and finish. And so at that right. point I was like, well, shoot, if I'm going to quit, I'm going to take the same roads back. I may as well just stay on the course and just finish this thing off. So I did. And, you know, of course I was exhausted and, uh, one of the last people to finish, but, um, but still it was a lesson in persistence and knowing that, you know, with the right attitude, we're capable of more than we think we are. Um, and, um, and so then after that, you know, I was like, okay, if I didn't think I could do this, but I could, what other things are there out there that, um, that I might be able to do if I plan and have good luck and, you know, supportive friends who I meet along the way or whatever. 
So um, then around that same time, a friend of mine was selling a fat bike. Um, he was a friend who had done the Airhood 135 for years. And um, so I thought, oh, that'd be a more fun way to do the Airhood 135 than on skis. So I bought his bike next year, went back and um, did the, finished the Airhood 135 on bike. And then I've been going ever since. And I just um, finished it for the 10th time uh, this past winter, a couple months ago. So That's awesome. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got into biking. Who'd you buy the fat bike from? Uh, John Kurth in Duluth. Oh, I don't know John Kurth. I wondered if it might be Todd McFadden. Oh, is... yeah. Todd. I mean, Todd is a, he's always been a mentor of mine and he's a good friend. And so he's a good human being. Absolutely. Uh, we stayed with him uh, a couple of nights when we went up to Arrowhead oh, a couple nice. years ago. Yep. 2020, uh, infamous year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, gosh, you, you dove right in. You didn't like, oh, I started doing five mile rides. I started riding the trail for 20 mm. miles to town. Well, there, like, there I'm going to do the hundred mile heck of the North. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was, some, there was some biking too. You know, I biked a lot as a kid and in college I went to the university of Minnesota and the campus is huge. So I biked to get around the campus and, um, did some biking around Duluth too, before signing up for the heck of the North. Yeah. That's very different than a hundred mile gravel ride. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, yep. and are you still going up to heck of the North? Eh? Can I oh, say that? Definitely. Yeah. I the Grand Nord is coming up in like seven weeks or something. It's going to be, oh, here nice, nice. it's going to be, uh, <laughs> that's still going to be a fat bike ride, isn't it? You guys yeah, have it could be. so much snow. Yeah, definitely could that's be crazy. You could ski it. Um, hope not. So I feel like, gosh, forty-five day canoe trips. The Iditarod must have seemed short, relatively it, speaking. Well, it's it scratched that itch though, you know, because yeah. I grew up doing long trips, and what I really like about long trips, compared to something that's just a few days or even a week, is when you do something shorter, like you start, you're thinking about the past couple days. And then you, you know, a day or two go by and then you're thinking about what you're going to be doing afterwards and like, okay, I'm going to get to this town and then I'm going to, these are my logistics home. And then I'm going to talk to these people and do all this stuff. Whereas for a longer trip, you can really get immersed and it just, it becomes a lifestyle and not like something that has like a start and end. It's just kind of this, like, it becomes your life. You get immersed in it and there's a rhythm to it. And, um, so that's what I was that's what I was hoping for, and I totally got that. It was awesome. It was great. Huh, that's cool. I've heard that from, you know, I've talked to uh, Peter without an E, uh, John Logar, uh, obviously Steve Cannon, um, mm -hmm. Bayot says that, and it's almost, I guess what I hear, uh, almost disappointing to leave the trail. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the reason I... The reason I decided to do the ride to Nome this year wasn't wasn't to go to Nome. I could have just flown to Nome, and it would have been a whole lot faster and easier. <laughs> sure. You know, my, sure. My goal in going up there was to go on this long, like seemingly endless trail, um, this endless ride. And like the trail did feel endless. Like I was, you know, riding along like six hundred miles in. Like wow, there's still like hundreds of miles of country to tackle and things to see and obstacles to overcome and all of that. Um, you know, it's, it's the journey, not the, no, yeah, it's the journey, not the destination. Right. Um, right. and so I was, I was really, you know, sad the last couple of days that it was going to be coming to a close. 
um, so soon because I wasn't ready for it to end. Like the group I was with, we got into a great rhythm and we were moving and it was a lot of fun. And so, but it's, you know, it's an analogy for life that things, you know, do eventually come to an end, like even if it's fun at the time. So it's, yep. You turn the page and open a new chapter of the book, which you do. But as you say that, I also picture Tim Hewitt, who has done, I don't know, a hundred million trips up the Mm -hmm. Iditarod trail or something. Um, most of them on foot once on bike. And he said he hated it, but, uh, he, and it's just, here I am in Des Moines, Iowa. Yesterday I did a hundred K bike ride, a team gravel thing. And it's like, Ooh, that was a long day. That was a long ride. And I still like, I got back to my car and I put warm, dry clothes on and, had dinner that night and slept in my bed and it was fine. And then here's you doing a thousand miles of the Iditarod trail. And it's like, gosh, you must just like always look forward to the finish and getting to Nome. And then there's Tim Hewitt who starts in freaking Fairbanks and walks to Nome and turns around and walks back on the Iditarod trail, which he didn't complete, but he went for that. And it's like, based on what you said, you can, picture wanting to do that oh definitely it's 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 not about like hey i can't wait to get back to my car so that i put warm dry clothes on and then have a beer and a hot dog and a you know whatever and sleep in my own bed it's like i want to live this life on the trail Mm -hmm. so that's Mm -hmm. i mean that's kind of cool yeah and like i felt i felt great towards the end like we weren't putting in like killer days towards the end and we were sleeping inside and um eating good food and And I think by that point too, my body had kind of figured out, you know, how to, like, I was well recovered. I wasn't like really taxing myself the way I was in the first, you know, week, week and a half where you kind of get run down and tired. So I said to uh, George Adams, who I was riding with, I was like, Hey, how do you feel right now? And he said, I could ride another thousand miles right now. Hmm. And I said, that's well put. I could too. Like I, I just felt strong and good. And like, I didn't even need to take a day off and know him. I could just could have kept going. Wow, that's that's kind of amazing. That's pretty cool, and I'm glad you explained it like that, so that we can kind of begin to understand that. Well, that mentality, that rhythm, that lifestyle that you immerse yourself into and mm-hmm. and adapt, adopt to maybe is the right word. But um, I would I do want to dive deeper into the I did a rod, and I kind of keep bouncing back to that. But uh, you also did kind of a long ride a few years ago that went north to south and it was a little warmer then you did the uh, tour divide mm-hmm. in um i want to say 2017 does that sound right yep that's correct uh how was that and and i'm going to ask you at some point to compare the two but uh tell us a little bit about your tour divide experience and of course there's another trick question like here's your elevator speech on tour divide <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean that was also another chance to you know, get away and immerse myself in something long and really challenge myself um, in a physical way. And I rode that with my husband, Dre. Um, and um, yeah, we trained and planned a lot and started in Banff, Alberta, and then rode south. And it was really hard. Um, probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Like, we, you know, we're sleeping only six hours at night, putting in 100 miles a day, fully loaded, um, going up and over uh, passes um, in the Rockies the whole time. And 
Um, then once I got down to Southern Colorado, I just started feeling really kind of like just run down and just exhausted. And so I told him to go ahead. I stayed back to go to urgent care and just see if there was anything that was um, easily treatable or anything going on. And the doctor said, if you were from here, I'd be running all kinds of tests on you right now because, you know, because you're tired and weak and you're you know telling me all these things. Um, but he's like, but based on like the fact that you're said that you feel started feeling tired and weak when you got to Colorado and kind of got up to altitude, you're from Minnesota, you've been pushing hard for weeks. Um, he's like, how about you take a few rest days and and then go back at it. And so I said, like, okay, yeah, I'll, I thought to myself, like, okay, I'll sleep tonight and leave early tomorrow morning. But, uh, but I had taken a full rest day at that point. So, so then I, I kept going and finished the day after my husband. And, um, once again, great people, you know, I made great friends on the trail and who I still keep in touch with and great community. It was, it was a lot of fun. That's cool. Um, still one of the hardest things you've ever done. Yeah. Oh yeah. Would you go back? We're just pushing so hard, like just so many hours a day in the saddle. And I just so wanted a break, just like wanted to just like take an early afternoon or whatever. But we just felt pressure to race and go as fast as we could. So definitely did that. What? I mean, where did that pressure come from? I mean, from us. it is kind of a race, but it's also not really a race. Yep. But you, you were competing, quote unquote. Yeah. With the, uh, yep. the others in the crew. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Doing everything we could to keep moving forward efficiently. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. <clears throat> um, and how long did that take you? 29 days. 29 days. So you're out there mm-hmm. nine days, uh, eight days longer than, uh, mm-hmm. the Iditarod trail, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, that being said, it's quite a bit longer. So yeah. 2,750 or thereabout. Yeah. So Oof. almost three times as long. Would you do that again? Oh, I, I would, but I have limited, you know, limited time to do things. So if I had, if I could, you know, go on a long trip like that every summer, like definitely, I would love to. It's a wonderful route. Um, it was awesome. But there are things that I'd rather do before I go back. Like hmm. the Silk Road mountain race would be really cool hmm. um, in Kyrgyzstan or, you know, touring in other locations like around the world. So, um so I, I would love to go back, but I'm going to go to other places before taking that on. Dig it. Uh, Arkansas high country race. Yeah, that'd be cool. Although yeah. a year ago, a year ago, my I, we went down there kind of in April um, to ride for a week and I rode a lot of gravel and that is a tough course. Road parts that is steep and like the gravel is so different from what we have up here. It's big rocks, chunky. Um, I have a lot of respect for that course. I think that's awesome because, I mean, it's in the middle of the United States and it's surrounded by cities and towns and highways and interstates and trains and planes and everything. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's in the middle of America, right? And yet it's this remote, super hard, super long, uh, adventure race that, uh, you know, is just plopped right down there in uh, the middle of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy that it, can be so hard and so remote, you know, surrounded by Little Rock and Fayetteville and Tulsa and, you know, Mm -hmm. all the towns and the highways. And uh, we Mm -hmm. drove through that area on their way, our way home from Texas last week. And, um, it's a beautiful area, but it's like, yeah, we were just on the interstate. So Mm -hmm. big deal. Let's just do a ride around it. But no, it's a big deal. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that would be hard. So let's dive into the Iditarod. That is uh, why we're chatting. And, and I love having you on. I love, um, uh, I love, I love having you on. I'm going to say that. Thanks. Um, so first of all, uh, tell me about your, it's an invitational and they, I don't know that it's a hundred percent recommend or required, but it's definitely recommended to do the 350 mile ride to McGrath. Um, you did that a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and my understanding is it, it is a requirement to finish. It the is a requirement. Okay. You can sign up for the thousand and I did that in 2016. Um, and how was that for you? That was amazing. Absolutely incredible. So once again, my husband wrote, he, um, he rode the first 130. He found out he could get into that just like two weeks before the race. So he went up. So we rode the first 130 together, but he was going at my pace. Um, and then like, I mean, first of all, the thought of crossing a mountain range in the winter on a bicycle is like so far out there. I mean, like it it is where, where else, like, where else do you do that? Like, it would be impressive to cross a mountain range on foot, you know, in the summer, right. Um, right. let alone on a bicycle in the winter. Um, and not just any mountain range. Right. Yeah. The Alaska range. The Alaska range. Yeah. <laughs> like right down the street from Denali, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, so, I mean, just like, so that was just so cool to go from literally you start, when you start, you're across the street from the ocean, uh, from mm-hmm. the Pacific ocean, you go kind of up along rivers and river valleys, um, up and then keep climbing, keep climbing up and over the Alaska range and then down into the interior to a village that's, you know, Alaska natives and then, um, finishing in McGrath. And it was an exceptionally fast year. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't when the course record was set, um, but it was almost that fast. And, um, it was faster in, I guess going into it, you know, you hear about like the one year they got a foot of snow and then it was 40 below and really windy after that. And, you know, my friend from Winnipeg got horrible frostbite on his face. And, you know, you, you hear all of like the, like just the crazy stuff that can happen. So during the time that I was there, I was like, well, it's 10 below in the mornings, but this is so much better and easier and more fun than I had anticipated that it could be. I was kind of prepared for the worst, you know, kind mm-hmm. of in general, my mantra, I guess, is a little bit like prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Um, so then when I'm in it, I'm like, oh, this isn't as bad as I thought it could be, or as it could be at other times. Um, but it was, it was just gorgeous to go through the mountains and, um, it was incredible. So then, you know, I, and one of the other things that was fun was to, you know, you get into a checkpoint and they have things stockpiled in it in preparation for the dog sled race. You know, oh, they'd sure. have like straw bales covered with plastic and some of the volunteers would be there getting ready. And then after the race, it was such a fast year. I was able to fly back to Anchorage in time to be there for the ceremonial start oh, of the wow. dog sled race in downtown wow. Anchorage, like a block away from our hotel um, on the Saturday. And I had a friend who was mushing, who was going to be on the trail. And so a uh, friend of a friend. Um, and so I was able to talk to him about the route. And so like after that, I was just so amazed by not only the biking part, but the connection to the dog sled race. And so starting at that point, you know, I definitely had my eye on the, on the full thousand mile race and Jill Homer 
uh, did wrote the full thousand that year. And then she wrote the book and I read the book and I was in it. And, you know, it was just like bringing back so many memories. It was just so fun to, to read her book. And so, you know, I definitely, um, after that year had been wanting to go back and do the thousand. Did so, you sign up for the 350 with the intent of doing the thousand? No, I thought, no, in 2016 or 2015, when I registered, I thought like the 350 is my bucket list thing. I'm going to go up there and, you know, do the 350 once and it's going to be amazing and I'll be satiated. Yeah, <laughs> no, I hear you. It is funny. Alaska like takes its little fingers and wraps them right around you and doesn't let go, doesn't it? Definitely. Yeah. And just, yeah. just this. So, you know, I just finished the, just got home over a week ago, a week and two days ago is when I got home. Race registration for next year opened up yesterday. And so yeah, this morning, do. my husband and I signed up for next year. Oh, awesome. So Your gonna... husband for the thousand? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, they do that on purpose, you know. They give you a little time to forget the uh, pain. <laughs> right. But get you when you're still excited. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. So the next year's a northern route, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. That's and... cool. And everyone who I was riding with this year had already completed that part of the Northern route. And the term they used was completing the circle. Yeah. So yep. I'm going to go up next year and complete the circle. And, you know, on some level, like I was so appreciative that I was with race veterans on one hand, I feel like I almost need to like give back to, to future people who are up there by, you know, kind of sharing that knowledge that I um, gleaned from them. Mm-hmm. just in terms of navigating the towns and the kind of the culture and the system, kind of how it all works past McGrath. Yeah, it is not, um, it, it being there and I'm going to use the word doing it. Although I didn't really do, I did, I did the, I did rod trail in airplanes mm-hmm. <laughs> and that I would recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but you learn so much. I would do things so different if I went back, knowing mm-hmm. what I know. So that kind of knowledge is absolutely valuable. Like, how do you navigate? Oh, there's a grocery store in McGrath. Uh, go to the grocery store. Everything is $5 or more. So, if you know, if you need a loaf yeah. of bread, have $5. Um, <laughs> uh, it's probably more now. But uh, um, but that's, that's super invaluable valuable information. One of the reasons, or not one of the reasons, but one of the things that I wanted to do in the film, A Thousand Miles to Nome, is help people kind of understand the Iditarod Trail. Because before I went there, my vision was, you go across Kinnick Lake from the start, and you are out in the middle of absolute nowhere, like Mm -hmm. from the start, and you're following your compass, and a map Mm -hmm. and maybe you see some stakes here and there, but you're out in the middle of nowhere until you get to Nome. And it's, that's very far from the truth. Like you leave and you're, do I go on this snowmobile trail? Sorry, snow machine trail or (laughs) that snow machine trail or that snow machine, like which snow machine trail Mm -hmm. takes me to where I'm going. And there's roadhouses and then the little villages and the little villages are like real places where there's drywall on the walls and there's electric Mm -hmm. lights and there's, they have refrigerators and like, it's just like a normal little village. It's small, but it's there, you know, and there's indoors, it's consistent temperature. You don't have to, yeah, there's, there are schools there and there's a post office. So it's like normal life, but it's, you don't, I didn't picture that. And so I wanted to take people through Alaska and kind of, kind of picture that. So 
I feel like that kind of information and knowledge for somebody who hasn't done it and hasn't been there is is super valuable. So kudos to mm-hmm. you for thinking that even that that's important and mm-hmm. it's important to share that that kind of knowledge. So take me, if you would, um, even though you follow the Iditarod Trail and the villages are the villages and the trail is the trail, like every year is different. Really, every day is different and has its own mm-hmm. character, has its own characters. Um, take me through kind of the first few days, if you will. How was the start of your race this year? Sure. So um, so my husband did do the 350. So we are riding together generally for the first 350, although maybe it was only for half a day and then we would be at the same place at night. But, um, but everyone left Knick Lake. Um, and, and also the starting gun is an actual gun, you know, down here in the lower 48, there'll be like a starting gun, but in Alaska, it's like a gun, a shotgun Um, or a rifle, big old rifle. Um, so, and, and also just for the listeners, the, um, the rule for the race isn't that you have to follow the exact route, but you have to hit the checkpoints in the to, in the prescribed order. So technically, you know, there can be multiple routes um, to get to a checkpoint. So, so sometimes it's a little bit of a choose-your-own-adventure, um, take-your-own-chance um, as far as um, how you get from one che- checkpoint to the other. But we started out... People took all different paths to get to the first checkpoint on Butterfly Lake. Um, Got there at dusk, had a beautiful view of the mountains uh, that are behind Anchorage. That was great. Kept riding and then dropped down onto the Yetna River. Um, And from that point, it was maybe 20 miles on the Yetna River to, um, to the next roadhouse. Um, Wasn't a checkpoint this year, but to a roadhouse. And around Yetna that Roadhouse. time, yeah, get no roadhouse. roadhouse. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I, it looked like checkpoint. that wasn't a checkpoint this year. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yep, yep, that was a change. Um, but they were great. They called themselves an unofficial checkpoint. They they took really, really good care of us. Really good care of us. Um, so you know, around that time, the Northern Lights came out, and it was just the most dazzling show. We were riding with someone who's a pilot for Alaska airlines. So she sees Northern lights all the time. And at first when they came out, I think she was thinking kind of like, okay, you tourists, like, you know, they're green (laughs) Northern lights. We see this all the time up here in Alaska. But then even later on, even she was taking photos of them. I mean, they were just moving and green and red and they were absolutely breathtaking. Um, And, you know, they weren't out for just a couple hours. They were out all night long. Um, for hours and hours, you could look up and see what they were doing. I got a video and they're, you know, dancing around and, um, it was so cool. Um, also around the time it was 30 below. And so, um, you know, it was, it was cold. You can't stop to, to do stuff. But a friend of mine from Minneapolis, Amanda Harvey had a flat tire. Um, I came up behind her and some people had stopped to help her fix her flat so they went ahead. I stayed with her to help her. Um, and we got her tire inflated, but then she had a heck of a time getting the through axle back in just because the grease on the through axle was stiff because it was so cold. And I honestly don't know how she got it back in, but she did. And then she was going in the chair of having a couple more flats with the bike on her back. She ended up walking into the checkpoint and got there after dawn. Um, anyway, so after, after she was kind of sad, I, I left, um, kept going 
Um, at one point that night, um, there was a, a trail that kind of left the river and started to go overland. And so I was looking at my GPS and there, you know, we were following bike tracks. And so I thought like, oh, cool. Like instead of taking this huge big bend in the river, now there's a shortcut, like this trail that's been put in through the woods. This is going to be great. It's going to save us a ton of time in getting to, um, or not to, to the checkpoint, but to the roadhouse. So I get in there about a mile and then people are coming towards me and they say, no, this is a different trail. This is a dead end. We don't want to go down here, turn around and go back to the river. So, so it turned out and it turned out that's what everyone had done. They'd followed the tracks to a certain point and then turned around and come back out. Um, also around that time, some people started to get cold hands and toes. Um, you know, a friend of mine, George, he had really cold hands and someone gave him some hand warmers. Other times people were walking because their feet were really cold um, and they were concerned that they might get frostbite. So they were walking to try to warm up their feet. Um, there was another woman out there, Kinsey, who ended up winning the women's field in the 350. She had two flat tires, so she was pushing her bike the whole way into Yentna. Um, so anyway, so there was a lot of challenges that first night. So I get into Yentna. Um, I'm getting something to eat. And then the guy next to me has taken off his gloves and he starts looking at his hands and his fingertips are blue on most of his fingers. Um, so, you know, that's, that's not, that's bad. You, you don't um, want to see that. No. So I get something to eat. I lay down, I get up in the morning and then a guy came in who was, um, hypothermic. And so the, um, the people at the Yentna Roadhouse called paramedic. They came in on a helicopter um, to um, assess and give him an IV and take care of him. Um, so, and then there was someone else who got, you know, bad news on their face. There was a lot of, basically there was a lot of frostbite that first night. It felt like, you know, freshman in college, when you take a, um, you know, for the engineering students to take a physics class, it's like the weed out class. Like that was, that night was kind of the weed out night. If you're going to get frostbite, you got it that night. There were a lot of people pushing to get to that roadhouse who thought like, I just need to push through this and get there. Um, whereas I think if those temperatures had come later in the race, people would have said, you know, I know it's going to be cold. I'm just going to hunker down, get in early, be inside that night. But people mm -hmm. were just kind of feeling the adrenaline of, of doing it. So I think that kind of compounded it. Yeah. Um, it, and it's a big push to yet now. I think, what is that? Uh, 60 miles up the trail mm -hmm. yep, and it's a right. 2 PM start. So it's, I mean, that's a big push for a late start. Right. And it was, you know, it was so cold that like the snow wasn't running real fast. It was just kind of mm -hmm. like Velcro-y and slow. And um, yeah, it took, it took a long time to get there. So I think I rolled in somewhere between like 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. Wow. And I was annoyed because my whole strategy going into the thousand mile race was like, I'm going to sleep six hours a night. I'm going to sleep at night. I'm not going to do these like late night pushes. And then here I was on the very first night, kind of like up past, like later than I'd wanted to be. And but you, I, you it said it freshman initiation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that event ended up taking out a lot of people. And in the end, the finisher rate of the whole event was only 52 and a half percent. So like 47% uh, dropped. Most of them, it was here due to issues they had that first night. And it's also relatively easy, you know, it's easier to get out there than 
anywhere else on the course. So, um, so in any case, they were able to, to get out. So, um, so from there kind of continued on towards Bentalit. Um, that's a new checkpoint in the, um, to the race and then, um, left there, skipped Squentna, which was typically always the second and then pushed on to Shell Lake. Um, which isn't a checkpoint, but the race had arranged to have two cabins set aside for racers. Um, and at Shell Lake, there was a fire just maybe in the month before the race started where the lodge burned down. It was this beautiful log cabin lodge. Um, and unfortunately, there was a fire. Yep. So that was, that was really sad to see where the lodge used to be. Um, so I have a question about that. Like, yeah. how did they manage you guys? There's still a caretaker on site and there's other cabins that people can rent out and do things in. So, um, yes, yeah, so there's a cabin for us and the, the cabins have wood stoves. Okay. So, we so did you have in. like, um, th they often in the checkpoints try to feed you guys. Mm -hmm. Were they able to do that there? No, there's no food at Shell. Just a cabin. No, okay. Okay. Um, and... Then from there, went down the Happy River Steps. Or, so, so we stayed at Shell that night. And then the next morning, got up, went down the Happy River Steps. This is where there's like a couple different trails to choose from. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, you know, there was one one trail that, or one kind of road that went around the Happy River Steps. And there was one that took the Happy River Steps. And I thought, you know, let's, because my husband hadn't been there before. I was like, you got to see this. This is great. This is a lot of fun. And so for listeners who don't know, the Happy River Steps are, it's kind of like this, part where it's descending down to um a river and um it's generally flat generally a little bit downhill and then there are these like think of like a children's slide just kind of these like steep drops um that are maybe you know 10 10 plus feet high but like fairly steep um so they can be fun to ride down and the last one is particularly steep and so for that one i put my bike i sat down on my bottom, put my bike on top of my lap and then just like slid down on my, on my butt. Um, and then when I got down to the bottom, I looked at my bike and I thought that my chain or my seat stay was bent. I mean, I have a carbon oh. bike. So I don't, it, it wouldn't have been bent. It would have broken, but I was staring at it. My husband's like, what's the matter? What's the matter? I'm like, Oh my God, look at my, look at my seat stay. It's bent. Like I, I broke my bike on sliding down this hill. And he said, no, the other side is exactly the same. You're fine. Just get up and oh, get good. on it. So I did. But I had a moment there. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wrecked this. Um, so then after that, you know, it's a climb and then you go up into, um, into Rhone, which is kind of at the base of the, of Rainy Pass. Um, mm -hmm. Rainy Pass is the high point of the course. Um, and that's when you cross the Alaska range. Um, one other funny thing that had happened was the very first night at Yantin, or first, you know, first night and then the following morning, um, you have to pay for food and lodging when you're there. Oh, Yetna. Yep. At Yetna. And I had uh, paid for it and then left like my wallet, which is a Ziploc bag with my credit card and cash um, oh, on the counter. And so then when I was about 10 miles out, maybe seven miles out of Yetna, I realized that I had forgotten it. Um, I thought, did I pick that up? And then I looked at my bag. I'm like, I don't have my, I don't have my wallet. Like, how am I going to fly home? I just lost a thousand dollars. Um, and cash and my credit cards, my health insurance card, everything. And so then by the time I got to the next checkpoint, 
I opened the door and then a friend of mine said, Leah, this is going to freak you out. But, and I said, wait, did someone find my wallet? I was hoping someone would see it and pick it up and then bring it this way. So she said, yeah, yeah, right. Jody found it and they're going to bring it up to here. And I looked the tracker and she wasn't going to be there for a couple hours. And so I thought, I'm not going to wait for my wallet. She can give it to someone. It can be bucket brigade, you know, yeah. she can give it to the next person leaving the checkpoint and, and it can get higher up the trail. So, um, so sure enough, yeah, Jody had it, brought it to that checkpoint, and then she gave it to Willie Malonia. Um, and then he took it and brought it up to Roan. So when I was at Roan, I woke up in the morning after sleeping there. I walk out to the table where there's like, you know, ramen and cans of soup and things. And I look down and here's my driver's license and all oh, the that's cash. Amazing. That's amazing. Card, which is like, oh my that's God. Super cool. Is. I mean, that's life in the trail, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's. That's super cool. And bless his heart. I think he had put in a super long day, got in that morning at like 7.30 or 8.30 or something, but he got my wallet to me as fast as possible. So I'm so appreciative of him to, you know, put in that long day and, and get it up to me. That was, that was awesome. Yeah, that's pretty Um, cool. How was Rainy Pass? So leaving Roan or leaving um, Puntilla, it was really windy, snowing, kind of ground blizzard. Um... The conditions were rough. We were mostly walking. Um, I think I walked at least 15, if not 18 miles that day. Oh, wow. Uh, between going up the pass and then over the pass. Um, at that point, my husband had gone ahead. I was riding with another with a woman named Corey. And once we finally got up to the top, it was like right at dusk. And the sun was going down. And there were trail markers along the route. Um with reflectors, you know, a little bit of like reflective mm-hmm. tape on them. Uh, but they were not spaced super close to each other. And um, so they were hard to, it was hard to see the next one. I mean, you couldn't always see the next one until you had gotten it got a, a little bit past the trail marker you were closest to. And the area of packed trail was really narrow. So, you know, some sometimes you'd be like post holing trying to figure out, do I, what side do I walk right? Or do I left? Like, how do I get back to the trail? I have no idea where the packed part of it is to even be following. Um, also descending. Uh, so that was, we walked down a lot of it just because, um, cause it was hard to tell, you know, cause it was so drifted that you couldn't yeah. see tire tracks or footprints or anything. And then even once we got down longer, at one point I veered off of her tire track, like four inches over, and I, you know, it was soft and I kind of went through. So I realized like, if I'm behind her, I need to stay on her tire track. I can't even, you know, veer over it. There was a, a movie that was, came out like 20 years ago called The Thin White Line. Yep. And I thought about that frequently. Like it is a thin white line across Alaska where you can ride your bike or kind of stay, right. stay right. up. That's really narrow. It could be four inches wide. Yeah. Um, it's that thin. So um, and so that was scary because it was at dusk and I thought we need to get down off this mountain soon. Like I, we cannot stay up here overnight. That would be bad. Um, we just gotta like think clearly and be efficient and get down before it gets dark. Cause you know, that time of night, it can get dark, can get dark fast. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was definitely one of the scariest kind of like serious moments, I guess. And then we got, once we got down a little bit lower, um, we were on the Tatina River for a few miles coming into Rhone. And that was also like, just like blowing snow in my eyes, like crazy windy. Um, 
kind of conditions. But then finally we came into Rhone, um, which is a checkpoint. There's a canvas tent there with a stove and drop boxes and pine boughs to put your sleeping bag on. And um, so I got there and got some veggie brats and vegetarian. So they had some vegetarian brats. Um, the tradition is they give brats, two brats to every racer. So my brats laid down my sleeping bag and had a great night of sleep that night. So good. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the weather was uh, kind of the um, main character. I feel mm-hmm. like from, mm-hmm. from what I see and what I watched uh, really through, wasn't it through McGrath and beyond? Yeah. So around that same time when we were getting, or maybe the previous day they had gotten like a foot of snow or something on the North side of the uh, mountain range. And so, um, so a lot of people had to walk a lot of that. Like the, the leaders of the race were walking on the North side or on the far side of the mountains. Um, when we came into Rhone, one of the volunteers or two of the volunteers were just getting back and they had driven snowmobiles with a cargo trailer um, from Rhone up to Nikolai and then to the finish, but to finish of the 350 mile race in McGrath and then come back. So actually they had done a nice job of packing the trail. So I was very appreciative that they had done that because then it set up overnight. So it was mostly rideable the next day. Yeah. Was there a fair bit of snow in the burn? Um, yeah, I mean, there were some bare patches, but, um, not as bare as it was, not as bare as it could be. Yeah. Dig it. Yeah. Um, so any other, uh, major features going into, from Roan to, um, uh, McGrath? Not much. There were a lot of, um, a lot of whoop-de-doos or, you know, um, moguls from the snowmobiles. Yeah. So there's a snowmobile race, the Iron Dog, which is, um, right before the ITI starts. And so when they come through, they put in, or just from all the traffic, um, there are kind of moguls that set up as a result, but people who I was with said they weren't as bad as they were last year. Mm. So that was good. Um, we stayed in Bear Creek cabin, which is a BLM safety cabin. Um, it's cute and cozy and, um, it's cold that night and cold the following night. So we were happy to have shelter, um, kept going through the burn and stayed in Nikolai the following night, that night, the, um, we got in there. It was cold coming in. As soon as the sun went down, the temperature dropped. Um, right after us, the Italians came in and they got uh, like 36 below Fahrenheit on their thermometers. Oh, wow. So it was was cold. I was glad that we got in there as early as we did. Um, once again, we got wonderful food from the um, Iditarod or the ITI volunteers, um, fresh avocado and veggie burgers. And it was great. Really, really yes. nice. Um, and then from there, the next day, uh, it was fine. Some group of seven snowmobiles came through and kind of churned up the trail. So I had a couple hours of walking and then, you know, riding the rest of it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great to get to McGrath then after that. Did you hang out McGrath long or was it kind of just a regular stop, rest up and get, no, I, I did stay there for, for a while. So I got in, I had wanted to ride with, um, Julie Garcia. Um, and she was a day behind me. Um, you know, I think that there's a couple different schools of thought for doing the 1000, as far as how you approach the stop in McGrath. Some people say just another checkpoint. So just go in, stay for a few hours, or if you get there, you know, in the late evening, maybe stay overnight and then start out the next morning. Other people say you should spend 24 hours there to really kind of rest and, 
um, refuel and kind of collect your thoughts for what comes ahead. Um, so I've been hoping to spend, you know, 24 hours there, or, you know, or just a hair more. Um, but I wanted to wait for Julie and I just wasn't really sure. Like I was a little bit hesitant about continuing on because, you know, I had done the 350 in 2016 and I just finished, I just come into McGrath. So now I, I've been on the first part of the course twice and kind of knew the checkpoints, knew the deal. And here I was about to head out into the unknown. And I just wasn't, I didn't want to do that by myself. Um, I wanted to wait for other folks to go. So I stuck around for them. Um, and then, and I had to say goodbye to my husband. He flew back to Anchorage. Um, so that was sad. Um, the Italians took off a day ahead of me. Um, I kind of wanted to go with them, but wasn't quite ready to go. Uh, but I was, they, they had an inreach. And so I was able to be in communication with them. Um, so then, so I, I ended up staying three nights in McGrath. Oh, wow. Um, so then, you know, Julie was, when she was ready to go, um, we left there and then headed out from, do you have any other questions before I talk about heading out from McGrath? Go for it. Okay. So then we headed out from there, went to Takatna, stopped at, at, at an Iditarod checkpoint and talked to like one of the veterinarians and some of the other volunteers. And that was cool. Went to Ofer which is the next checkpoint. And um, one of the people on, well, there were three people on foot who were ahead of us, the three who ended up finishing um, mm -hmm. the thousand. And um, one of them had been coughing. And so he wasn't right. allowed in the tent with, um, with Bad and Takao. And so, and as a result, us four bikers coming along afterwards, we weren't allowed in the tent either because they said, you know, we're afraid you might be sick and we don't want to risk getting the mushers sick because the mushers were going to be through there in another day or two or whatever. Sure. So um, we pushed on and stayed in the cabin um, and over. And then, and during this time, it, it got to be warm. It was sunny. Um, it's probably in the 30s or maybe even 40 degrees. So we were doing a lot of walking and the trail had kind of deteriorated. Um, leaving over, it was more of the same, just kind of like sideways sleet and snow and wet junk. So we got to a shelter cabin called Tolstoy. We decided to take an early afternoon, go in, start a fire, dry out our stuff. Um, around that same time, um, my brother's good friend from Minneapolis, uh, was in the area. He's a videographer for the Iditarod, um, or Iditarod Insider. And so his job is to film the lead musher or the couple lead, couple mushers in the lead. And so he's always at the front of the race um, with, you know, there, there's two guys who are working together. So I told him we were going to stop in at Tolstoy. So he came to Tolstoy to say hi. So it was really fun to. That's crazy. Spend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's been doing it for 16 years. Yeah, that's And so cool. he knows the trail and the racers and, you know, just a wealth of knowledge. Yep. So it was uh, really fun. By this time, has the uh, uh, trail breakers for the dog sled race come through? Yep, yep. So the trail's and, been set ahead of you. Yep. And I didn't, right, so when they come through, right, they have big snowmobiles that lay down the track and then they they add additional stakes. Yeah. Because um, one thing is at this point we had, um, the trail had split into the north and southern routes. 
Um, so the northern route is followed in even years. The southern route is followed in odd years. Um, and that applies to the Iditarod dog sled race and the ITI. But the iron dog always follows the northern route. And so when we left Ofer, or just a few miles past Ofer, we left the what had been traveled by the snowmobile race, the iron dog race. And so, um, so yeah, this part had been staked by the uh, dog sled race. Mm-hmm. Um, Was it in bad shape? Because I hear the um, southern route really hasn't been used for a bit. So exactly. was it in bad shape? No, it was it was great. In 2021, due to COVID, what they did is they went to, um, so it was an odd year, so they were on the southern route. They went to the Iditarod checkpoint and back. That's right. Um, but the part past Iditarod, from Iditarod to Shagaluk, nobody had been on that for four years. There was a trapper from Shagaluk that used to use that trail, and they had contacted that person. He said, no, I don't use it anymore. I don't know the condition. So, you know, at this point, like we're at one of the cabins and we hear that like there's like the trail crews going ahead to clear brush and any down trees because like they don't know, they, to their knowledge, nobody has been on that section of trail past Iditarod for four years. Wow. Yeah, it was re- really cool. And like also to be that trail crew and know that the pressure is on, like the dog teams are coming through in like one or two days and you got to hurry up and clear any yeah, down there, trees you, while there are there, any big piles. For sure. There's no lollygag in there. I mean, right. you do have to stay ahead of the dogs. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, you're, you're not going to hold up the race because you're still <laughs> clearing. Trees. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> could you guys do your 24-hour mandatory layover, please? Exactly. So that we can get ahead of you. Yeah. Uh, that, that would be uncool. Yeah. So, yeah, so coming into the Tolstoy cabin, the trail was super soft. We were pushing our bikes a lot of the time. Like I said, it was really wet. So we stopped at Tolstoy. My brother's friend Ian came to visit. And we decided, you know, let's go to sleep early. We'll wake up at midnight, be on the trail by two. Ian said, yeah, I think the trail's going to firm up overnight. It's not going to be super cold overnight, but it'll be cold enough. I think you'll be good. So we got up at two, started riding, um, rode for a couple hours. Uh, we were riding. There were like tussocks or hippie heads, kind of these like hummocks, um, which are like a, um, in the Arctic, you have those are kind of like a grass clump um with reindeer moss anyway there was low snow so we were like riding on these like this like arctic vegetation and so suddenly it kind of came real to me like oh my gosh we're biking across tundra this is so cool because i had seen that vegetation on my arctic canoe trips but i had never experienced it in the winter Hmm. and i was like wow this is amazing this is like the best ever and then the dog team started coming and you could see the lights mushers have really bright lights because they have to be able to see like a ways ahead of the dog where the dogs are. Um, And so we could see their lights like from the far hills and they, you know, see them approach. And one of them stopped and he said, how far, you know, the musher ahead of me, how, how far am I behind? And like trying to figure out like where people were on the trail. And um, so then we stopped it. Um, Basically the point is getting up that morning was kind of the turning point in the trip. In terms of like before that point, you know, 350 had really challenging conditions. Um, leaving McGrath to Tolstoy Cabin, it had been like warm and really wet precipitation and crappy. But then like that morning, leaving at 2 a.m., like the trail was firm. We started seeing the dog teams. Like everything was awesome from that point on for the whole, like the conditions were just great. Um, and it was easy to be happy. So we were seeing the dog teams. We got to meet Ryan Reddington, who went on to win the race. He 
lives like 45 minutes away from me um, in northern Wisconsin. Uh, met the uh, Richie Deal, who went on to be third place. Um, chatted with him for a while in the cabin. And got to see the dog dogs, like they were taking care of the dogs, like giving them snacks and water. And um, it was just really cool to see all them. The, the dogs are moving. So the, the dog race starts a week after um, the ITI, but the dogs move a lot faster than we do. Um, and so, you know, so they passed us, um, got to talk to, yeah, Brent Sass, who's the defending champion, also originally from Minnesota, from the Twin Cities. Um, and then that night we got to the Iditarod checkpoint, which is a ghost town. Um, and, um, it was just absolutely gorgeous. Like the sun was setting. It was just the most idyllic thing. There were tons of dogs. There. I met Wade Mars, another musher who lives in Northern Wisconsin now. Um, continued on, you know, the next day to, oh, and then Julie, who had been riding with us, um, she had knee pain from that day of getting up at two. And um, so she needed to fly out. So oh, she left our group, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it was really great riding with her. And so we missed her. And um, you've kind of developed into a big group now, haven't you? Four or yeah. five, six of you? It had been had been four. And then Julie left. And then we were down to a group of three. Okay. Me and George and Brian um, from South Dakota. So then we went over to Shagaluk that day. It was absolutely gorgeous. There were so many times I thought I should stop and take a picture of this, but I'm flying downhill and it's really fun. <laughs> so I'm just going to keep going and have a mental, you know, a, a memory of how pretty this is. And that's one thing from talking to George, who's on the Northern route, he said the Southern route is, is really striking and pretty um, compared to the Northern route. So we got down to Shagaluk and caught up to the Italians at that point. Cause when the trail had been really soft, they had been, you know, working hard and walking and, um, kind of getting through it. And, um, once the trail had frozen up, that's when we kind of went, went for it. Um, so anyway, so we caught them. And then from that point on, we are a group of, you know, kind of six with Ryan and then he kind of, um, started to fall a little bit behind. And then we were a group of five. So me and George and the, the three Italians. So, um, so yeah, then we hit the, the Yukon river and we had, um, good conditions that one of the challenges with the Yukon river is you can get a headwind, um, with blowing snow and also you can get slush. Um, the river can be really slushy, but it was, it was, it was cold at that point. Um, I would say from like that turning point I was talking about until the end, it was, it was cold um, every day. So there was no slush the trail was firm. Um, we did have one day of wind, um, but that was okay. When one of the challenges with the Yukon river also is that you are, it's 120 miles between villages. And so there's like nothing there except for the one um, checkpoint called Eagle Island. And so what Ian, my brother's friend had told the videographer guy, what he had told me before is he said, Eagle Island, there's nothing there. Like the bathroom is a tarp. Like there's nothing. Um, so our expectations were low and, you know, people like oftentimes have to bivy out on the river and it's 30 below and really challenging. So when we got to Eagle Island, the last musher had just left. So it was the last night that um, volunteers for the checkpoint were going to be there. They were all flying out the next day. Um, and they may have had leftover food. They, so they made us, they made us spaghetti and meatballs and brought down this big pot down to our tent. And, 
um, or, and they put us up in a tent with a heater and um, said, hey, we're going to leave the generator running and here's your power strip so you can charge all your stuff in the tent. No way. Oh, by the way, there's Starlink um, satellite internet. And, oh, no way. Um, here's a left, you know, a little half a bottle of whiskey and um, here's the, <laughs> and here's the bottled water. So you don't need to melt snow. You can just like take the bottled water and heat it up on the um, diesel powered heater in the stove to wow. heat water in the morning. So we, we were just so lucky to be there at that time. Um, cause if we'd been a day later, everyone would have flown out and there would have been nothing there. And in fact, when the people on foot came through a few days later, that's what they encountered. Like there was yeah, just there nothing. Was nothing there. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so they had a cold bivy on the river. So we were and just if, so if you'd been there earlier, you would have encountered dog traffic and probably right. not been allowed or you wouldn't have been treated so well because they oh, needed definitely. that stuff for the mushers right. and the dogs. So right. was, we're busy. It was perfect timing. Yeah. yeah, it was awesome. And that's yeah. kind of like, I would say the hallmark of the second half of the trip was just like, just a combination of like luck and then taking advantage of good conditions and going, you know, when we could, like, it was just, it was just awesome. And we're just yeah. appreciative that, that we had that. Yeah. Um, and then we get up to Caltag and I'm in there and there's someone who looks like a family friend. Um, our grandmas were best friends in Northern Minnesota and stop it. Um, my mom and uh, his aunt were best friends in high school. And so I was like, where are you? Are you Alex Buto? And he had run the Iditarod before with a dog team. So I knew that, and his dad had to, so I knew he was kind of connected to the Iditarod. So, so it was fun to see, fun to see him. <laughs> Just oh, that's crazy. People in the gym at the Caltech school. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You, you do. You do literally never know. I, we were in Duluth for uh, Arrowhead and um, I think it was the, um, the place that makes like, I don't know, everything out of leather. Mm-hmm. Like Duluth Pack? Uh, what's the other one? Frost it's River. Not, Frost River. Yes. Uh-huh. Thank you. We we're in Frost River and uh, just conversation with some old guy behind the counter and he's like, oh, yeah, I used to run dogs up the Caltag Portage from Unicolid. And we used to stay in a cabin and go hunting. And, yeah, I know all those trails so well. And it's just, like, so random. And and you share this experience with somebody that uh, you would have no idea you'd run into. That mm-hmm. being said, I'm not from northern Minnesota, where you do have people who mush. And, I mean, it's a little more northern yeah, uh, facing than than Iowa, but that's just super cool to run into mm-hmm. like familiarity, right? As you're yeah. on this thousand mile adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really cool. Yep. So I sent the so photo to my mom, and she couldn't believe it. And I bet. Yeah, <laughs> I bet she's like, seriously. Yeah, you seriously, ran into somebody. Yeah. Um, let's jump ahead to the Bering Sea. Uh, Unicoli, you you run down from Caltag over to um, the Caltag Portage, which is the trail down to the Bering Sea. And there you run into Unicolite. Yeah. So that's when we hit the the ocean. And that was, to me, that felt like such a huge milestone to go from the ocean at Knick all the way across the Alaska Range, through the interior, through these ghost towns, you know, mining, like gold mining district, Yukon River, and then be back at the ocean. Like that just felt like, oh my God, we have come so far. This is incredible. Do you remember um, when you first saw it? Of course, yeah. Well, yeah, well, we, got to, we got to Unalakleet, and one of the nice things about being with race veterans is we'd get to the town, and they'd be like, okay, we're going to take this street and this alley and, you know, kind of get exactly where we needed to go. 
we went up over it, the sun was setting. Um, and so we kind of like went up on a little on the road that runs along the coast to yep. take a picture and kind of experience like the sun setting in Unaluk Lake. It's incredible there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was wonderful. And so, water uh, or ice? What's that? Are you looking out over water or ice? It was ice. It was ice. Okay. Yeah. It was all water when I was there. Really? Oh yeah, no. it was all water. Yeah, I'll send huh. you a picture at some point. But okay. Wow. Yeah. But, yeah, it was all. But, and we were gorgeous orange deep sunsets mm-hmm. unbelievable mm-hmm. and we were at peace on earth pizza um and the owner brett is great and we had drop boxes there and he you know fed us pizza and friends my husband and friends had called ahead and uh paid for pizzas and so we got there and he said everything is covered for all five of you for the night like you're good you don't need to give me any money and so it was just such a fun like celebratory environment we were just so happy that we had made it that far um and and then in the morning he came over in his bathrobe to make us breakfast and um and send us on his way he was he's wonderful really he is wonderful appreciate him being there for sure for sure so, so, so then, then you've we, got uh kind of circumnavigate norton bay norton sound mm-hmm. yep exactly Um, and that was, you know, that was interesting. I had known that it could be windy right around Shack Tulik. Um, Ian had warned me about that, talking about, um, a musher who had just kind of like at one point just sat down on the ice and he was just done because it was so windy. (laughs) Wow. Um, so when we got there, it was windy. And then, you know, the Italians would say, oh yeah, last year when we were here, the wind speed was twice as high. So this isn't so bad. It could be worse. And that logic always resonates with me. Like it could be worse. I should appreciate what I have, you know, the conditions that we have. Um, so, um, so we got through that. Um, and then, yeah, headed across the, um, did the big crossing the next day. Um, and that went fairly smoothly. The, uh, forecasted wind speeds were only 15 miles an hour. So, you know, it's still definitely like a, uh, headwind in our face. I got a couple splotches of frostbite on my cheeks, but, um, but they were shallow and minor and, um, in the scheme of things. Um, it yeah, could so be got, worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so then we got to Koyuk and, you know, I would say from that point on, it was just fun and beautiful. And, um, we'd be along the sea ice sometimes and be along the hills sometimes. And the trail conditions were great. Everything was kind of, uh, it had like all firmed up and, um, yeah, just kind of riding through the hills. It was just pretty dreamy. Um, and then we got to White Mountain and stayed at the home of Joanne Wasilly and Jack. And that was nice um, to get the hospitality and hang out with their dogs and kids, um, take a hot shower, sleep in a bed. Um, and then we left. And then that was our last night kind of on the trail. Um, got an early start the next morning. It was 20 below. Uh, we were pretty chilly um but stopped at the couple cabins for you know lunch and um coffee breaks and then um once we got close to Nome um a friend of a friend um had ski jord out to greet us um so he came out with his two dogs and um got to meet him and then the last five miles were on an ice covered road all the way into Nome and 
Um, I do a little bit of road biking. And so once I hit the road, I was just like so excited to like go fast. Um, so Tiziano caught up to me and he said, no, no, we have to finish together. And I was like, yeah, of course I know I'm just going fast and having fun. He's like, okay, let's wait for the others. So I said, okay. And then once they caught up, I was like, okay, when do we start the sprint? Like we got to grab a sprint finish. Right. And they said, no, no, no sprint. So, and I was like, I know I'm just kidding. So yeah, we all finished side by side under the burled arch. Once I saw the arch, like I just started crying, like, it, you know, cause you've, I've seen pictures of the burled arch in Nome and it's so iconic and just to see it there was incredible. What was it like to ride up that ramp to the arch under the arch and cross the arch? Surreal. Yeah. To see and be like, Oh my God, we're here. We came here from like near Anchorage. We've been out here for three weeks and it was awesome. One of the things we did too is every day when we were done riding, um, we would give each other a hug and say, good job. And the Italians would tell me Brava. Um, and uh, so, of course, we did the same thing when we got to know and we gave each other, you know, hugs and um, and then got our pictures taken. And yeah, it was awesome. That um, is awesome. Yeah. And then that night, you know, the, the people who met us at the finish said, oh, yeah, we were just over at the Mushers Banquet. Um, and it kind of been a goal of mine to go to the Mushers Banquet. So the Mushers Banquet is on the Sunday night. Um, two weeks after the start of the dog sled race. And I kind of wanted to go because it's like this big, long thing where all the mushers give speeches. And um, so George and I went over there and it was pretty sweet because it's like 60 bucks to get in the door. But we got there an hour or two late. And so no one was at the door anymore collecting money. So we just walk in and the buffet is still set up and we have these appetites from being out on the trail. So, uh, so we're, we're filling up on that. And it was it was so cool to see the mushers who we had met on the trail and see them there, you know, all clean and rested and getting their awards and just to kind of take it. Like it was just the perfect like ending to this experience to see kind of that, like the awards for the dog sled race and, you know, just kind of feel a part of that event a little bit too. That's a perfect kind of closure Yeah, because it's, I mean, I, I actually went to the Mushers Banquet myself and know what a celebration it is for all of those guys. So mm -hmm. I can only imagine how excited they were to see you guys roll into town. And yep. it's like, oh, yeah. hey, let's bring it all together. Yeah, like we made that's it. We cool. saw you like 400 miles ago, but we made it. Yeah, that's cool. That's yeah. super cool. So this big adventure, uh, certainly not your biggest, but um, what do you take home with it? What what do you bring back to northern Minnesota, to the lower 48 from from Alaska, from Nome? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think in addition, like, well, one thing is, you know, this has been kind of a long time in the works. Like, you know, I started um, with Arrowhead 135 and all that kind of stuff over 10 years ago. I think, like... 2010, maybe I was volunteering up there, maybe 20, yeah, 2010, I think, you know, so I've been kind of into this like winter race thing for a long time. Um, and doing these like Arctic canoe trips, like this is kind of like, it was really cool to be able to put together so many different pieces from my background, um, in terms of like the Arctic canoe trips, the winter camping, the, um, and then like the cycling and the winter bike races and all of that. So I think that that was really cool um, to be able to put all those pieces together and accomplish 
you know, finishing this. Um, and then another really big thing is just reflecting on, you know, they say it takes a village and just reflecting on how many people have supported and encouraged me, um, throughout the years. And especially how many people have been so close behind me and really helping, you know, facilitate this whole thing. So, you know, before I came up here, um, some friends put on a fundraiser for me and they put in a ton of work for that, um, and got donations from local businesses and friends who, you know, Jeremy Kershaw donated a race entry to heck of the North and a friend who makes jewelry donated jewelry and, uh, a friend who makes spoons donated wooden spoons, you know, just so many people donated things. And then other friends just gave so generously. Um, and you know, people have just been so positive and encouraging and, I feel like, well, I'm extremely appreciative of that because, you know, there was a point when I was in the fundraiser, I thought if something goes bad and I have to quit, um, there's going to be a lot of people disappointed, you know, that I have to quit. Like there's so many people rooting for me and I'm so appreciative of all of that energy. Um, and so, you know, I thought like, I have been thinking, I mean, ever since then, like I owe a lot of people, a lot of support and encouragement to help them pursue their dreams because I have been the recipient of so much like positive energy and love and help. And I really need to like figure out how to help other people in this, you know, do, do what they need. Um, because, because you can't do things like this, just isolated and on your own. Like it does take a lot of people to in- help encourage and support in various ways. So, so that's one of the things I need to, to figure out is how to, how to be better at helping other people. Instead of just Well, taking- I think just telling your story helps out. I have one kind of more question and maybe it's the same thing and maybe not, but um, for those of us who, you know, are down here and sleeping in our own beds at night uh, and doing a, 100k gravel road ride gravel road race and thinking that's a big deal and can't visualize actually being able to ride a bike across the alaska range through alaska to the bering sea and on to nome um for from someone who's done it who quit their first arrowhead and who only made their first heck of the north because they got to the halfway point by accident kind of Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say to all of us who feel like that's an impossible, like I can't even list that as a dream because it's just plain impossible. But, yeah. I mean, I think, I think the biggest thing is you can't give up on your dreams because if you don't keep the faith, then there, you know, it will become too late at a certain point. Like this is something that I had wanted to do. And, you know, I said to my husband, like, this is something I want to do in my life. And why, why would I wait until I'm older? I'm like, young, I have the fitness now, like, why would I, why would I put this off? Um, so I think the biggest thing is like not giving up on those dreams, but continuing to work towards them. Um, and I think also surrounding yourself with people who are supportive and encouraging of those, um, dreams. And, um, well, I guess I think the biggest thing is just not to, not to give up hope. Perfect. I love it. Well, listen, we've been uh, chatting for a, a hot minute. 
Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of funny when I came out with the the film A Thousand Miles to Gnome, somebody's like, ah, it was kind of long. And I was like, dude, it's a thousand mile race. Of course wow. it was long. We yeah. went a little over an hour, but it's a thousand mile race. Of course it took a while to tell the yeah. uh, good stories from, from your trip. So I really, really appreciate your time and congratulate you on, geez, all of your feats. And I feel like you're just kind of getting started and doing this stuff is just a part of who you are. And that's pretty mm -hmm. darn cool. It is great. So. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun to tell my stories and yeah, it's a great trip. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode and thanks to Leah for making time before she is trading snowdrifts for sandy beaches. Look for her on Instagram and Facebook. It doesn't sound like she is done with these great adventures and you're going to want to follow her along. Later this week, I've got a bonus episode for you. Leah talked a lot about how great it feels to reach Unicolite on the Bering Sea and the pizza joint called Peace on Earth Pizza. When I was there in 2019, I talked with Peace on Earth owner, Brett Hansen. It's pretty interesting how a little pizza joint in a small village on the Bering Sea can thrive serving all the villages in Western Alaska. I hope you'll enjoy it and tune in later this week. Now I'd like to thank Chain and Spoke Coffee and Bikes for supporting the show. You can order your favorite blend now at chainandspoke.com or you can just stop by their first retail location in Des Moines, Iowa. Great coffee, great bikes. Service, too, if you need your bike fixed. If you are headed across the country on either I-80 or I-35, stop on in. You'll be glad you did. And I'd like to thank you for listening to Bike Talk with Dave. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by rating, reviewing, and sharing. If you'd like to support the show financially and help improve the show, you can go to buymeacoffee.com and throw some change my way. I promise I'll use it to make the podcast better. And I will send you a Bike Talk with Dave sticker. There's a link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. We've got a busy month ahead. This week, the Trofeo Sabato Santo circuit race in Des Moines, where we'll be spinning skinny tired bikes around pavement. And at the end of the month, we'll be back on gravel enjoying the beautiful hills of Northeast Iowa in the Driftless 100. There's still time to join the fun at DriftlessGravel.com. Hopefully we'll see you there. And in mid-May, stage racing returns to the Midwest at the Three Days of Des Moines, or Dryadoxy of Des Moines. I'm pretty sure I need to brush up on my Fle Flemish, and uh, I think I'll ask Chris Daggs how to say that. Anyway, the three days of Des Moines, three days, four stages, all categories. It should be a great weekend of racing. You can find information at bikeiowa.com. Just click in May events, or you can look for a link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a great week. <music>